0: Forum
1: Borealis
0: Paradigm Expansion
1: Greetings from the North, all citizens of the world. Welcome to the Forum. Today we have Dr. Farrell back and with a new show in our World War II series, in good old Pharrell style. We have actually slightly touched this subject matter in an earlier program with him, but then he went ahead and wrote an entire book, quite timely, I might add, on this much too overlooked mystery. The subject matter is Rudolf Hess. The top Nazi who got captured by the British before the war and rot in prison ever since. You would think this is an absolute trivial case. But the whole affair is riddled with paradoxes, contradictions, conspiracies, mysteries, plots, surprises, schemes, twists and many dark corners like... A good old spy novel, indeed like most things coming out of World War II it has been material for several but few mainstream attempts have been made to make sense of it all and for the longest time was left to the infotainment industry of journals and periodicals before it just went almost quiet. Still, some important books have been written by excellent researchers, one quite recently, and Farrell's book is based upon these works, with his own excellent take on it, uncovering perhaps even deeper layers, based on on his connecting of the previously uncovered pieces of the puzzle. And among the ingredients in this brew, we find everything from Antarctica to the Holocaust to MKUltra and a million weird elements in between. The book in question is called Hess and the Penguins and is a thrilling read, almost like a crime novel. Unfortunately, We can't even begin to cover all the contents of this book, but today we are going to at least scratch the surface. And it could only be written by a renaissance man like Dr. Farrell, who commands a large number of subjects, both from his personal interests as well as through his formal education, which includes a PhD from Oxford. He masters several interdisciplinary matters including a lifelong passion for subjects in which he has attained a skilled level in everything from ancient and recent history to obscure and deep physics. He is well known for being an outstanding prolific author, having written more than 37 books on various matters, mind you most of them within the last two decades especially of controversial and exotic nature and is a respected documents researcher with mastery of all sorts of primary texts, owning an exceptional ability to perceive new angles in old expositions, connecting seemingly disparate dots and unearthing innovative solutions. On the artistic side, Joseph Farrell is a lifelong classical composer and performer of the Cembalo in the Baroque style of Bach. A major factor to why he captivates our attention, apart from his profound knowledge, is that he is not shy of scenario thinking, which always is fun but as a good scholar makes it clear what is hypothesizing and what the argued speculation is based upon, thereby allowing us to draw our own conclusions and even pursue further the various loose ends. For more details, check our presentation page of him at our website, where you'll find his most complete bibliography online. You can also visit his own site, an online academy of sorts called Giza Death Star, after some of his early books on the antediluvian topic. Perhaps more than anything, Joseph is known for cutting-edge research into the strange and lesser-known aspects of the Nazis, which is exactly what our focus is. On the Hess Mess Is. And this therefore makes tonight's show our Forum Borealis Classic. Welcome back to the show, Joseph.
0: <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah,
1: it's been a while now. I, I just noticed uh, the other day, it's almost been a year actually.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: So we have to make it up to them today.
0: <laughs> well, that's the intention. Yeah,
1: I heard. I heard you've been sick. Uh, indeed, um, what happened was that uh, as I've heard, many of the your geezers asked us, "Where are we? What's happening?" And not just the geezers, because we had this cliff high guy on. Do you know about him? Sure do. Yes. And his people didn't know anything about us, and they come in, flooding in through the very, very popular Antarctica subject that we are going to cover a little today, too. <laughs> and we were, we released part one, we released part two, and there was a cliffhanger, pun intended, at uh, the end there, and we didn't get around to release part three, because then I become sick. Mm-hmm. And they were flooding us, not civil like your people, much more base. So there were a lot of people were angry. (laughs) They were missing the show so much that they were actually scolding us. (laughs) Yeah. So, but anyway, well, no, what happened was that first I had to do some journeys. So it was a calculated break we took. And I'm saying this for the benefit of all you listeners who, especially you geezers. So that was okay, that was supposed to be a month or so, and then I had to move one of my bases, the one in eastern Ausl- uh, Eastern Norway, mm-hmm. uh, so that was calculated, and it takes a lot of time because like you, I have a library. Yep. And you know how, that's the damn pain of moving, is the books. Yes, yes. It's the only argument against books, actually. <laughs> <laughs> And then what happened was that in Norway we have, uh, you know, we have much more socialism than you do. And mm-hmm. for all the benefits they are flaunting, one of the disadvantages is our lack of democracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just decide stuff and they put it, just implement it. And so they just decided that we're going to have something called smart meters. It's actually called AMS meters. Yep. New technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I'm, I'm going to have shows about it. There's a growing protest movement here in yep. Norway, and there's a lot of research. Too. Yeah, too. And what happened was that I was oblivious about it. I noticed my cat uh, started to lose hair mm-hmm. and sleeping all the time. And every time I was here, I started to get headaches. And I'm usually in top shape. I'm doing yoga and everything, man. Mm-hmm. And I was getting headaches, and then I was getting um, what you call, uh, you know, when you get something in your face, red marks and stuff. What's it called? Rash. Um, rash. I got rash. Mm-hmm. And I st- I couldn't sleep anymore. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. My whole uh, life was ruined, and I noticed it was only when I was here. So I started to find out what could it be, right? Mm-hmm. And I was especially motivated when my heart stopped beating. Oh my word! Yeah. So I got, and I know why now because I've researched the medical explanations. It can make your heart really fuck up your heart, and if mm-hmm. you got pacemakers, forget about it. Mm-hmm. I don't have that, but uh, no, um, so it's all to do with this technology. It's basically, m- mine was radiating at a vibration of a million, and in most countries, the limits uh, values are like 100 or 1,000. Mm-hmm. I was radiating at a million. That's absurd. Yeah. And it's, they say that it's like uh, having 10 microwaves open, open and on yep. at any given time. Yep. So, it wasn't radioactive, but it's still a radiation poisoning. Yep. Uh, electromagnetic uh, radiation poisoning. So, so I warn everyone, anyone. I know in some American states, these are forbidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, in others, they're rolling them out. So, you should check it out. If you have these wireless meters for your electricity, get rid of them immediately. And, and to you Norwegians who are listening to this, go to the... Go to a blog of a chap called Einar Flydal You Google it. He's a researcher who's a whistleblower. He used, worked for one of these companies. And he's collecting money for uh, taking this to courts. And he's releasing research and everything. It's brilliant. So go there, people. He'll tell you how to get rid of them. Because you have to do special loopholes in the law to get rid of them. And for everyone else just google it and and make sure you're not uh, I I really consider moving to Switzerland I can live anywhere you know so Switzerland Mm -hmm. they are forbidden these things and Switzerland has democracy you know something resemblance Mm -hmm. of democracy (laughs) one of the few countries left Exactly. and of course why not I mean that's where the banksters are living so why wouldn't they want democracy for themselves
0: (laughs) exactly exactly
1: (laughs) Today, we're going to go, uh, we're not exactly going to Switzerland, but we're going pretty close. I want to say for the book we're going to take on that uh, I want to recommend people who maybe people who know you will uh, know how you write and stuff. But this is kind of, like I said the other time we had you on, this is kind of breaking with your usual narrative uh, because it reads more like a detective novel. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice when you start reading it, it's very hard to put down. And For me, who usually read in the bed before I go to bed, it's kind of a curse because I have to (laughs) read a little every night. (laughs) But I couldn't with this one. If you want, you can read it in a few days. It's a very easy read. Mm -hmm. And it starts in the beginning and it ends in the end. So you go through this like a detective novel and uh, it has a very high pace. It's kind of like the war version of The Da Vinci Code.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So uh, I recommend it for everyone and uh, we will... I think it will be hard to cover because it's dependent on so many uh posts on the way that we can't get around to um but we'll we'll try we'll try i want to start with pointing out that you are relying a lot on three books mm-hmm. in particular then you add your own special dimensions to them we'll get to that addition but let's start mm-hmm. with the kudosing those books
0: sure yeah. Well, the first book uh, that I relied very heavily on is a book by uh, Lynn Picknett and Clyde um, Prince, you know, the two British researchers, probably well known to most of the listeners. And it's a book about Rudolf Hess, and I forget the title, Dark Mission or something like that. No, not Dark Mission. Um, oh, gosh. Now now that you ask, I, I can't <laughs> remember the title. Standards. Yeah, double standards. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's it's a massive book. Uh it's it's in excess of six hundred pages, and they pour over every detail of of the Hess case just with an absolute fine electron microscope. Um if you get one book about the Hess case, that would be the book that I would recommend that you get, because they've just done a phenomenal job of, you know, uncovering detail after detail and constructing what I view as a very plausible um, scenario. Which, in effect, I adopted that scenario for myself and and fleshed out some other details of a couple of details that I think they kind of overlooked or or weren't paying attention to. But, you know, that's not a detraction from their book. It's it's a marvelous book. Um,
1: Do you recommend it in addition to yours? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Background. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, the other books that I relied rather heavily on were was a book by um, Hess's nurse, during his last few years in spandau prison he was a tunisian by the name of Abdullah malawi and he wrote he was actually the fellow that that began questioning the whole uh, so-called suicide scenario from the outset from, oh yes, absolutely from the outset. Uh, he had known Hess, been his nurse for a good five to six years prior to, to Hess's death. And that's an important book to read because you're getting his firsthand impressions of what it was like to go to Spandau and, and discover Hess and, and the mysterious, weird things that were going on around his death at the time. Uh, the other... Two books I want to mention that I also rely heavily on are two books by Hess's son, Wolf Rudiger, hmm. uh, who had published. Um, I think it was actually three books, but I only used two. I wasn't unable to track down the third in time, but he wrote a couple of books um, about, and he he just makes. Mince is no words. Uh, he says, you know, that his father was murdered, and he's wondering who did it and why, and so on and so forth. So those were those were the two books by Hess's son, uh, the Hess family. Since then, as far as I know, his children have not written anything about the case. I'm assuming that you know they're just kind of sick of it all and they want to move on <laughs> with their lives. And yeah. you can't blame or
1: or they may have been um, should we say convinced.
0: Yeah, convinced <clears throat> not to talk anymore, right? Mm. Uh, and then the third, uh, the third major book that I look at very carefully is a book by uh, British physician by by the name of Hugh Thompson, mm. and that was a major book that appeared in the late seventies. Uh, who murdered? Or pardon me, late eighties. Who murdered Rudolf Hess? Uh, and that was one of the first books to present the theory of of a double so it's those books that I'm principally focused on. I bring in some other sources in the course of the book and um but those those are the major ones hmm.
1: It is interesting
0: and it's an observation
1: I think you make too. or you make a similar observation that for some weird reason uh, the Hess story has just gone. Silent, And yeah. I have to say, of all the conspiracy theories in the real sense of the word, you know, not mm-hmm. the derogatory sense, mm-hmm. but of all those, this should have been the most popular for several reasons. One, it's pretty down to earth. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have to invoke UFOs, although we'll actually probably manage to do that in part three, but you don't have to invoke, you know, UFOs and all sorts of weird stuff to flaunt this story. I remember it even for the most, uh, in the most trivial literature in, in man's magazines in Norway and you know, all sorts of stuff. They used to entertain this. And so it's, it's pretty, basic, and everybody can get it. That's one. So it makes it a perfect conspiracy theory, much like I would say JFK. You don't have to mm-hmm. invoke paranormal or metaphysical aspects there either. Mm-hmm. Second, it has a lot going for it. In fact, yeah. again, it's it's pretty comparable to JFK. You don't have to do much digging or unearthing before even the most mainstream conventional person will start to realize something's going on here. Right. So... But unlike JFK, this thing got a lot of popularity, For, first in the beginning, of course, when that happened, you know, my father's generation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it came in the European, at least, newspapers occasionally about Hess, you know, how long is he supposed to be there, Spandabla, the money, Berlin, all that stuff. But after the Cold War in particular, and after they got rid of Hess, and I think it's interesting those two things are conflating. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Right? So that's over and bam it
0: goes silent yep, don't you make a note about this in your book well i do if you if you stop and think about it al the strangest thing about the hess case is all the obvious things that you don't think about for example it's hess is the one thing during the entire cold war that it seems that the United States, France, Great Britain and the Soviet Union can agree on we're going to keep this guy in this prison in spite of all of our other major geopolitical differences so that you know that to me raises a red flag right there then you get then you get the the problem of digging into all the strange things that surrounded him while he was in Spandau. For example, Stalin had at one point, and I cover this in the book The Third Way as well, Stalin had actually offered to West Germany under the, uh, during the chancellorship of, of uh, Konrad Adenauer, uh, had offered to allow Germany to reunite the eastern and western zones, if Germany would would remain neutral. And in researching the Hess book, I found out that apparently Stalin had approached Hess himself about this. In prison? In prison, you know, through probably during the Soviet rotation there, and – that he had offered this deal and and made it apparent to Hess, and Hess turned it down. So I had to wonder, well, what's that about? Then you go to the other interesting thing about the Cold War, is Hess dies... And then all of a sudden, what you see happening, within five years, Germany is reunified. Margaret Thatcher is ousted from her premiership uh, and the leadership of the conservative party. John Major takes over. Hmm. And I discovered that there is actually a connection to Mrs. Thatcher because apparently Ian Goff, one of her major press uh, you know, leaders, uh, Mrs. Thatcher had apparently been trying to work with people to get – to get Hess released and then bang he dies in a car accident and Maggie Thatcher is ousted and a, a very important uh, injection here. Um, mm-hmm. Thatcher I-
1: I'll say her dictatorship because she, she had, uh, she was like the queen. Oh yeah. She was, excuse my French people, she was a bitch but she really had the power and she was against EU, one of her few positive traits.
0: Exactly. And
1: that and so they get rid of her and bam EU comes. Yep. Yeah, so all these things uh, may be connected, actually.
0: Oh, I, I, I absolutely think they are, because one of the things that Picknett and Prince co- uncovered, or pardon me, uh, Wolf Riediger, uh his his son uncovered, was he writes about his wife, and apparently this was part of the family trying to get their father released, or whoever. <laughs> we'll get back to that. Yeah. But his wife apparently had made a trip to South Africa to meet a South African lawyer who, who, who swore out an affidavit and gave her this affidavit. And she came back and brought this affidavit with her. And the, affidavit, in, the in the affidavit, the lawyer specified that Reich Minister Hess – and this is, this is a very important point I'll be returning to in a minute – that Reich Minister Hess – had been murdered by elements of the British SAS and uh, that the Americans and the French knew about it and were just kind of, you know, nod, nod, wink, wink, go ahead. And this came after Mikhail Gorbachev had reversed, indicated that he was willing to reverse the Soviet position and allow Hess to, to be freed. The Soviets had been, you know, I grew up listening to this case You know, occasionally appearing on the news, the Soviets were always the one vetoing Mm. the release of Hess. And then Gorbachev comes along and he decides, well, I'm going to reverse the Soviet veto. And what that in effect does is it puts the ball back in the court of the British and and the French and the Americans. (laughs) And of course, the, the British end up offing the guy according to this lawyer. Well, in the affidavit, the other peculiar thing that you notice over and over is that he never refers to Hess as simply Hess Mm. or Rudolf Hess or Herr Hess or anything like that. He always refers to him as Reich Minister Hess. And I had to wonder if the lawyer was trying to draw attention to a point of law Mm. and the the point of law being was at that time, Hess, of course, was the last surviving Nazi that held a high position, both within, within the Reich government, you know, a cabinet level position in, in the cabinet, and then also as head of the party. But he was the last surviving Nazi to have the title of Reich Minister. And, you know, I've pointed out in several books that that. The the Nazi party never surrenders, and there's a bit of a question about the surrender of Germany itself, because what you find surrendering in those surrender documents that are, are signed in Reims, France, and then uh, Berlin the next day in May of 1945, is you find this this peculiar absence of reference to... Um,
1: yeah, in traditional in war, just to give people the background, there are certain uh, things that has to be in place in this ritual surrendering. The Japanese had it, but in the German case, uh, there's three elements that has to surrender. Right? It's the military, right. it's the right. state, right? And the and third is,
0: is, and the third is the party the itself. Party. Yeah. And the only thing you find surrendering in those surrender documents are the German military. You don't have you don't have any surrender that's signed by Grand Admiral Dönitz who succeeds Hitler as head of state in the final week of the war. What you have surrendering are representatives of of the main service branches of of the German military, and there's no signatory for the Nazi Party itself. You know, and I've always found that very curious. If you look at the Japanese surrender, you find. People signing on behalf of the Imperial Diet, the Imperial Senate, the Imperial General Staff, the Admiralty, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the Japanese are really surrendering, but you go to the German side of the equation, and this is kind of left hanging in the air. And I suspect that the legal niceties here were that they were trying to get rid of the last title holder. Of Reich Minister, in other words, break that legal connection that ran from the Third Reich back through the German Empire uh, back through the kingdom of Prussia you know back to the Holy Roman empire they're, they were um, trying to get rid of the last legal vestiges of of that entity
1: uh, there is another spin on this uh, that uh, I just dawned upon me because at this point, when they reach the level where they 're going to sign this stuff, they have got rid of. FDR, whether, mm-hmm. whether like we've speculated before, whether it was monkey business or it was just Providence, he's out of the equation. Mm-hmm. And right. they have this, yes, this lawyer language. Why would they? And and then I realized who's one of the big players on the allied side at this point? A lawyer f- from Wall Street. Oh, yes.
0: Yes, absolutely. Right?
1: Yeah. Nothing happened here. And, and especially Dulles was especially involved here because he had already the history of of the First World War and the Second World War. Right. He was a huge player. Now we know also the Amalgam between his kind of faction in American mm-hmm. system structure and and the Nazis. So. <laughs> That is interesting and and then why has why because you see many of the Nazis first of, as we know we 've covered extensively in other shows, they took many Nazis into their own uh, structure, and then they got a few symbolic Nazis that they had to punish interestingly, mm-hmm. those Nazis who had to suffer the uh, Nuremberg trials very interestingly those are kind of those who were least loyal to Hitler. Yes. And we're going to get to that today. And it's like they were punished. And we had Laurence de Mello on, and she's say that her contact 007 actually, <laughs> the model of 007, <laughs> I forgot his name Ainsworth or something, he told her that they took Bormann uh, Bormann was present in, in Nuremberg behind a uh, glass and he could tell, he consulted the British, he's lying he's not lying, uh, blah 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 like that, so mm-hmm. he, if that's tr- even true, uh, he could have made sure that their enemies were really punished he could get back to them, so, uh, sort mm-hmm. of. But nonetheless, at least this is sh- for certain. And that is that of all these people, they let many go early. It's mm-hmm. like after they hanged a few people, the, those who got in prison, they were all very mildly treated. It's like, ah, the war is a nuisance. Let's, let's just mm-hmm. make them go through the required uh, minimum and then let's just release them all. Except one person. And that person is Hess. That's Hess. And the irony is that he's probably the nicest Nazi of all. (laughs) (laughs) So what's up with that? That's always bothered me. This is the one Nazi you can have sympathy for.
0: Yeah, this this bothers me too. If you look at the seven people in Spandau originally that were with him, you had the two grand admirals Erich Raeder and, and Karl Dönitz, who of course succeeded Hitler as actual head of state, and they're released early. Then you had Albert Speer, the the minister and and you know they released him early. Uh, you had Balder von Schurach, one of the leaders of the Hitler Youth. They release him early. And then you had two other individuals that I find very curious. You had Walter Funk, the the economics and minister and, and president of the Reichsbank after Hjalmar Schacht. They released him earlier. Now it was Walter Funk, you'll recall, from the Third Way, who had that – Reichsbank IG Farben study sponsored his name appears as one of the contributors to this collection of papers that was done in Germany in 1932 on how to construct a, a European federation via a regulatory bureaucracy and if you go through that thing it's almost point by point what you see is the structure of the European Union today well they release him early and then one of the most odd people At Spandau was Konstantin von Neurath, who had been in World War One, one of the signatories on the German side for a German version of a Balfour Declaration to establish Jewish homeland. Old friend of Doss, huh? Yeah, yeah. And he, he was released early. So you have all of these people that are in Spandau with Hess that are released early on humanitarian grounds and yet they keep this guy locked up in Spandau for the rest of his days. Who wasn't even present for World War II. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't present for most of it. And, you know, why? what's going on here? What's the big secret that they're trying to keep? So, you know, yeah. the... The, the Hess case, you know, just I, I pointed this out in the book. If you look at the leaders of World War II, you've got biographies on everybody from Admiral Yamamoto to, to Marshal Rokossovsky to, you know, you've got biographies of everybody in World War II, except Rudolf Hess. <laughs> exactly. That was my next uh, point of going
1: because I want us today, if, if people think we've even touched the mystery yet, we haven't. This is just like, The preface to the mystery or the appetizer, the warm up gig. We're going to get to the mysteries, people. Uh, This is nothing, but it's kind of contextual. And Joseph now touched on a very essential thing. They have even buried him in history. There's very little decent study. And so we're going to have a three parter today. And. um, the first part, I was thinking, let's mend that fact. Let's try to give some sort of biography and and background info on who has was Mm -hmm. and his role uh, leading up to the first, I'll say, (laughs) wowser, which has to do with the potential, I'll just say it because you've already spilled the beans in all the interviews, a potential mutual coup attempt, actually. But, but, Let's right. not go, go
0: there yet. But all this will be part one. So let's start with Hess. Who the heck is Hess? Okay. Rudolf Hess was known, Al, during during the period that the Nazis were in power prior to his flight to Great Britain in, in May of nineteen forty one. Rudolf Hess was known and even celebrated in, in propaganda as the conscience of the Nazi Party. Mm. He was he was born into an upper-middle-class German merchant family in Alexandria, Egypt, in the late 19th century. And, of course, he was raised in the German quarter in Alexandria during the summers. The family would summer back in Germany. So the first thing about Hess is he's growing up in a milieu where he's exposed and I think acquires a lot of his interest in esoteric and occult subjects in Alexandria. And that stays with him the rest of his life. And of course, in Alexandria, he learns to speak Arabic rather fluently. So the other thing we need to know about Hess is that by the time he flies to Great Britain, he's the cosmopolitan Nazi. Yeah,
1: he, he has know. to. He has to, by that very fact, also be intimately uh, familiar with real Jews, not just the uh, Ashkenazi of Europe. But, right. Uh, right. Because back then. At that point, Jews, Muslims, Christians were all living uh, side by side under the Ottomans and, Eng- and the Englishman, I guess, at his right. at the point where he, so he has to know more than the general, let's say, peasant countryside Nazi who,
0: right. you know. Right. Right. He he is a connected individual. You know, by the time World War 1 ends, he's learned to speak French fluently. He's learned to speak English fluently. So in other words, this man is also multilingual. Which is very very rare among the upper Nazi hierarchy. In fact, he's the only one that you can really point to that has that kind of international cosmopolitan upper middle class background. So he comes in the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when was he born, by the way? Uh, I think it was 1894. Don't don't cite me on that. It was 94. Okay, you know. late 18. Yeah. But
1: that's very telling too, because then he grew up in a time period where they already had launched a lot of speculation and hypothesis uh, about uh, pyramids. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, occultism, esotericism, the, the the floodgates of that was open at this point. Right. This was after Blavatsky and Theosophy started right. that trend in, in that romantic period. So he had to be exposed to a lot of this stuff.
0: Right, and and the other thing that we need to know about Hess is, is that he was uh, – sent by his father to Switzerland to study in uh, some sort of Ecole Supérieure de Commerce or something like this in, in Switzerland. And of course, you know, again, here he's exposed to a variety of of people, a multilingual background. He's he's dealing with French and Swiss and anybody else carrying on international trade in Europe. So he's a very sophisticated sort of person. And then we need to talk about World War One and And the aftermath, because this is where it really gets interesting. Hess joined the uh, infantry, the Bavarian infantry, and served in World War I uh, with some distinction. Uh, He was wounded at the Battle of Verdun. Uh, and then transferred from there to the Eastern Front and wounded again, a rather severe wound in Romania on the Romanian Front in 1917. And uh, that wound is going to play a big role later uh, when we start talking about all the ins and outs of this case because he was shot by by a Manlicher Carcano, incidentally, (laughs) a rifle that the Romanian (laughs) army used. And the bullet supposedly hit him in the upper left chest and then went down all the way through his, his body grazed the top of his lung and, and heart and then exited the rear. So he was convalescing for several months. He was not able to return to uh infantry duty so he became a pilot toward the very end of world war one I. I even put a picture of hess standing in front of an old Fokker triplane
1: so so that means he's actually brave because he could have yes at that point he could have retired right but uh, i guess like uh, adolf he must have uh, gotten a medal for being a war hero and stuff then
0: I do believe that he had the, the iron cross across second class, which was, you know, kind of the equivalent to the American purple heart. It was a wound, uh, a war wound medal type of thing, and then the Iron Cross First Class was given for bravery, and so on. And then you had the the Blue Max, the Pour le Merite, which was the highest uh, military decoration for the German Empire. Which I don't think he ever he ever won that. But yeah, you're right. He he could have easily have retired and become a reservist training officer or something like that. But he went back into uh, active military service by trying to join a, a fighter squadron. The war ended before. he he saw any active combat duty in that capacity but after the war this is where it becomes quite interesting because he then enters the University of Munich and matriculates in the geography department which at that time was headed by Professor Dr. General Carl Haushofer
1: okay okay okay. here we need to take a pause again and you have to (laughs) fill people in on who he is because he's a big name not just in this story, but in general, in all yeah. things Nazi occultism.
0: Yeah. Uh, Haushofer was the German geopolitician that we credit for inventing the idea of Lebensraum. That in order for the Third Reich or for Germany to maintain world power status, it would inevitably have to collect all the old German homelands, basically, you know, reconstitute the Holy Roman Empire. And then eventually expand to the east. And it was also Haushofer whose study of geopolitics convinced him that the policy of imperial Germany building up a strong navy and essentially confronting the British Empire was absolutely the wrong policy to pursue. You know, he hammered home over and over again. That the um, the uh, your your bong is really noisy. Oh, sorry. Yeah. It's, yeah. Can, can you can you can you mute the mic because it's, it's a vape. I'm, I'm I'm hearing AI or the vapor. I'm hearing this. I'm hearing this gurgle in my,
1: my ear. Imagine I'm having a gas mask. This is he's Second World War. Right?
0: Oh, we're talking about World War One. Yes, yeah, so he's sucking the mustard gas. Folks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I think I'll add it out okay. but anyway go, go on but anyway Haushofer uh, had several deep contacts in Great Britain between the wars and Hess by matriculating as one of Haushofer's students is exposed to these geopolitical ideas and we should note that Hess was a very good student. He did well in virtually all of his courses, history, hmm. geography, physics, mathematics. So in other words, again, Hess is not a, a dumbbell. This is a very sophisticated man. He's he's very intelligent, very bright. Uh, and this friendship with Haushofer, of course, lasted all through... Uh, the period that, that the Nazis took power right up to the time that that he flew off to Great Britain. And I should point out that Dr. Haushofer's uh wife was was Jewish mm-hmm. and Hess extended, you know, his personal protection to the Haushofer family, which apparently somehow survived through the rest of the war until the very end. Wow. Uh, when Albrecht Haushofer, General Haushofer's son, was accused of being involved in in the bomb plot against Hitler and and subsequently executed.
1: Yeah, I mean, let me say that uh, it's interesting because really, if you if you're going to be a detective and research the anti-Semitism among the Nazis, you kind of get the notion that some, probably Hitler, but. Some, uh, central Nazis are very ardent and fervent about implementing anti-Semitism, but right. that it doesn't apply to all the leadership. We know that many Jews were protected. Right. Like Goering, for instance. He said, Goering, yes. He said, yeah. <laughs> and I love this quote, I decide who's a Jew or not.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and there were
1: honorary Jews and there were even Jews yes. serving in as generals in the military.
0: Oh, yeah. There, there there, were people in in the Nazi hierarchy and military that, that had uh, Jewish blood and, and ancestry. And this is an important point, because Hess is one of these conflicted characters. And I try to bring this out in the book. He's very conflicted about this whole anti-Semitism uh, pogrom agenda. He is responsible on the one hand. For co signing the Nuremberg race laws, you know, these notorious race laws uh, into law. And incidentally, it's important to understand that Hess, as the leader of the Nazi Party and the personal representative of Hitler to the Nazi Party, his signature had to be on all laws. In other words, Hitler had to sign, but Hess had to co sign. So, just by the very position he had. Right. Just by the very position he had. He was a Reich minister without portfolio. He was the stellvertreter, or the placeholder for Hitler and the Nazi Party, and so on and so forth. So he was very, very powerful. But he signed these laws, but then on the Reich Kristallnacht, uh, you know, the the infamous burning and and looting of, of Jewish shops and synagogues and so on in 1938, Hess was the only Nazi to protest and tried to get Hitler to to call it off and tone it down. So, you know, he was conflicted. And interestingly enough, at, at the point that the Reich Kristallnacht occurs, this is when you see Hess's uh, psychophysiological signs of of that moral conflict. Because he begins to suffer stomach pains and
1: stuttering. Have bad,
0: yeah, stuttering and bad headaches and so on and so forth. Um, he, he definitely, uh, was trying to kind of head this thing off at the pass. And, uh, again, a morally conflicted man, but it, it stands to reason that, that being kind of a cosmopolitan Nazi for want of a better expression, <laughs> that, that you would have that kind of, uh, you'd have that kind of emotional response in him.
1: Yeah, because, because I mean Nazis are very demonized after the war, obviously, Uh, winners write the history, but what many don't know is that in the beginning uh, they drew upon a lot of different kind of people Uh, even communists, even communists joined the Nazi party and they also had this segment of, I should say the traditional upper class German uh, nobility who had these romantic notions, who were, you know supposed to be civilized supposed to not be these brutish
0: right like the opposite of sa right right exactly and again since you mentioned the sa it was hess again that was along with goering one of the drivers to get hitler to move against the sa and get rid of some of the leadership and in fact again after hess initiates this uh this purge You find him again trying to intercede to get some of the names on Hitler's death list taken off. So on the one hand, he's driving the event, and on the other hand, he is trying to mitigate it. So again, you know, we have a conflicted character. Now, you mentioned the German upper crust, and this is where it also takes another turn, because after World War I, as Hess is a student at the University of of Munich and and getting to know the Haushofers fairly well, he also joins, and he's the only major Nazi that we know who did join the Tula Gesellschaft, this notorious interwar uh, crypto-occult kind of uh, proto-fascist secret society in Munich. And it's that society that had the swastika as kind of its society logo that would greet each other with the greeting Heil und Sieg, you know, hail and
1: victory. Mm, That's where that comes from. Yeah, but Good question. Bosley's research, does he connect Tula to uh, the NIMSA?
0: Uh, to my knowledge, no. But again, you'd have to you'd have to check with that book. I don't recall mm. that he does connect it in his book about that. But but the important thing here is Hess's connection to the Tula Society, yeah. because Hess is the one driving those symbols into the nazi party it's hess that's driving that doctrine into the nazi party and now let's turn to the infamous beer hall putsch in in munich Mm -hmm. in 1923 the way that most people have been mistaught by history books is that hitler hess goering and the nazi leadership were trying to take over power in bavaria and then expand power to the rest of the Reich. And this is a bit of a misapprehension because what had already occurred in Bavaria was a communist coup that took over the state government, and the Nazis were trying to stage a counter-coup. And the reason they did that was that the communists in Munich wanted Bavaria to secede from the Reich government and reclaim its original sovereignty. You know, this is a yeah. peculiarity of Bavarian history that most people don't know.
1: They're, they're so nationalistic that they even, uh, you know, they want to be a nation of their own.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Well, we've seen a recent example of this with the Bavarian uh, former Bavarian interior minister in, in Chancellor Merkel's cabinet right. basically defying her. Uh, So you've got this long tradition in Bavaria of a kind of a semi-autonomous region within the Greater Reich or the the Greater Bund now, but uh, the Nazis were trying to prevent this because, of course – if that happened, their their goals for a greater Germany would be just, you know, dust. Yep. Yep. So they were actually trying to stage a counter coup and prevent that secession from happening. And this is a crucial component that most people forget. Now, Hess, of course, was personally trust, entrusted by Hitler in that coup to be the one to go out and round up the various Bavarian ministers of state, which Hess did. Now, that's an important point because Goering is the other major leader of the Beer Hall Putsch, and he's not entrusted by Hitler with that job. So, in other words, again, Hess is the point man for what is actually the nuts and bolts of that coup. Well, we know the result. The coup fails. Hitler is arrested. General Ludendorff flees from the field. Hermann Goering flees to Switzerland and Hess, for a brief period, flees across the border to Austria. Mm. Hitler, Hitler stands trial and is given a very light sentence to serve in Landsberg prison. because. And, yeah, and a, I, think, I think the coup here
1: is precisely because they were sympathetic to their uh, intentions of uh, not letting them see success, right? I think that's right, why exactly. they're treated with silk gloves.
0: Yes, that's exactly why. Mm. So Hitler's given a very light sentence. Hess, seeing that, comes back to Munich and stands trial, and he's put in prison at Landsberg with Hitler. They share adjoining cells, and they actually have a kind of a living room cell. Yeah, I hardly call it a prison. It's more like a summer camp, isn't yeah, it? It's hard. Yeah, it's like it's like one of these American federal prisons, you know, that you go to with a golf course and all of this stuff, <laughs> you know, because that's exactly the circumstances that they were in. It was, it was for a prison apartment living room. It was rather lavishly appointed. And it's there. This is a crucial period because it's there There, that Hitler supposedly, according to the standard narrative, is dictating Mein Kampf, and Hess, being the dutiful lackey, is sitting there at the typewriter pecking out what Hitler's dictating. All right? Mm. Now, this is, again, total bunkum, because for one thing, the title of Mein Kampf is not Hitler's title, it's Hess's title. Hitler originally wanted to name the book something like Four Years of Oppression, Misery," and you know, <laughs> For a, Yeah, you know, a title that hardly rolls very easily off the tongue. Mm. And Hess just said, "No, no, no. You know, that'll never sell. It has to be something short and to the point." Mein Kampf, you know. So the title is actually Hess's title. And in addition, some of Hess's assistants after the Nazis took power, one of them being a, an American actually maintained and said, as did General Karl Haushofer, that it was actually Hess that dictated the more lucid passages and wrote the more lucid passages, particularly the ones dealing with the Nazi party, its ideology, its platform, uh, its geopolitics. So he was the thinker of Hitler's brain. Bingo. Mm. Bingo. This is exactly true. In fact, it's so true, Al, that the Foreign Affairs magazine in this country, you know, the, the flagship magazine of the Council on Foreign Relations, actually published a couple of articles at the time claiming that Hess was the real brains of the operation. You know, he was the piano to Hitler's music. And again, this this comes out in this whole Mein Kampf thing. A lot of that book, as I say, the, the more uh conceptual and intellectual parts of the book are actually written by Rudolf Hess not Adolf Hitler.
1: <laughs> so mm. and and it was always intended as a propaganda document anyway.
0: Oh absolutely. Absolutely. They were
1: clever because um if it's going to be a political manifesto then uh, they uh, and they had to sell this because they were into this uh, personality worshiping. So it was already kind of established that yeah, you Adolf, you're going to be like the uh, outer right, yeah. figure, the statue, right, the focus. Yeah, so Hitler was appointed at that point to be that for the Nazis.
0: Well, let let me let me address that yep. because prior to the Beer Hall Putsch, within the Nazi Party, Hitler was always referred to as Herr Hitler. Right, but after Landsberg, it's Hess that decides. Well, we've got to make we've got to make him as you say the 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 figurehead for the movement figurehead that's the word yeah so at at this point hitler hess decides to have everybody call hitler at first der chef the chief and then just changes that to der fur the leader so it's it's hess that's driving all of this personality cult it's hess that is driving all the symbol Pardon me, the symbolism of Nazism, you know, the, the Ziegheils and the swastika and all this, because, again, it's only Hess that we know was a member of the Gesellschaft, along with very powerful German nobility family, like the Fonturn the und Toxis mm. family, the big the big banking family, and, you know, I've spoken about that in connection with Venice and so on and so yeah. forth, but... Uh, Hess Hess again is a key crucial figure in the uh, trappings of Nazism you know that we've all come to to know and loathe uh, the you know the endless flags the torchlight parades and so on and so forth yeah. so Hess is literally a, a linchpin in this whole movement that ultimately attains power in Nazi Germany and then it's Hess of course who, Uh As we're probably going to get to Who begins to see the direction That Adolf is taking things in And is trying to turn in another direction. Yeah,
1: it's like the Frankenstein monster, isn't yes. it? We're losing control Yes,
0: exactly. exactly.
1: Many people were starting to worry and stuff. Yeah. But I, I want you to go a little bit back to Haushofer. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think we propped him up enough for this story, did we? There's a lot of things to be said about him. You did say that uh, he was married to a Jew.
0: Yes.
1: And his son. Uh,
0: Albrecht. By the way, did Haushofer and his family survive the war? Haushofer, as I said, Albrecht Haushofer was implicated in the bomb plot against Hitler. Yeah, so he, was and he, he was executed right toward the end of the war. Uh, his other brother, Albert, survived. General Haushofer and his wife both survived the war. And in fact, it was General Haushofer who, along with Hermann Goering, was brought in by the British and American physicians to... In front of, of Hess, and we're now putting Hess in quotation marks, folks, so that Hess, they would ask him if he recognized Goering and, and General Haushofer. And his response at Nuremberg prior to the tribunals when he was presented with these individuals was, no, he didn't remember them at all. Which you, okay, you know, we'll,
1: begins, oh, I think we'll get back to. We'll get back to that. We'll yeah.
0: get back to that. There's one more point
1: here we have to cover uh, before we can move to to that part. Uh, but I want to say even before that again that it's interesting that House of a Son was involved in the um, Valkyria. Was that the operation? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So because I mean, father and son. Uh, even if they would have ideological differences, they would certainly have blood sympathy. So, right. that means that you can suspect Haushofer to also, be, even if he wasn't actively participating in that, he must have belonged to that growing faction of worried Germans who didn't agree with the way it took uh, at that point, because I yes. mean, there was a lot of influential military and Nazis who they didn't. I mean, it was a totalitarian regime, so you couldn't come out with it. But they were whispering in the corners.
0: Oh so, yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, but that, that's a, not a leap at all. But the interesting thing is, if Hess and Karl were close, because you in your book, oh yes,
0: absolutely, they were. Uh, he's kind of like the mentor of Hess. So he's not only the mentor, but he's godfather to Hess's son Wolf Rüdiger. Right. Along with Adolf right. Hitler. So you know, <laughs> right. uh so, so so that kind of indicates that a tie all the way to Hess. Oh yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: To the right? Yeah. So uh, I mean there's so many uh, signs here. Yeah. That makes this thing very, very interesting. But one more thing we have to cover before we can move on from Hess's background, and that's Bormann.
0: Yes. Bormann uh you know Hess is if nothing else Hess is a talent spotter and it's Bormann that Hess taps to be his personal secretary in the Nazi party so in other words the man that ends up being kind of the the number 2 man at the end of the war who is actually running the the internal affairs of the Third Reich while Hitler's managing to lose the war and do so less than brilliantly, it's actually Martin Bormann, you know, that's kind of really the behind the scenes power in Nazi Germany. Well, again, Bormann would not have been in that position had Hess not put him there to begin with as his personal secretary. And one of the interesting things that Hess did when he did this was he put Bormann in charge of the Nazi Party finances. You know, that was his that was his brief.
1: Brilliant moves.
0: It was a totally brilliant move. And again, you know, this would not have happened other than Hess recognizing Bormann's uh Cheney esque talent, so to speak, and hmm. and putting him there. So again, Hess is Crucial here, he even plays a role at Dunkirk. You know, Hitler issues the halt the, the the halt order for the the Wehrmacht not to annihilate the British and and trap French forces on the beaches there. Hess was pressing Hitler to do that, do precisely that. Just go ahead, wipe, ah. wipe them out. It's presented as if
1: Hitler had his big heart for his Aryan brothers. No, I totally agree. I think that was Hess's concern because Hess – and we're going to get to this, but
0: Hess wanted – Well, no, you're misunderstanding me, Al. It was Hitler that issued the halt order. Hess wanted the Wehrmacht to finish the British off. Really? But I think, yes, but I think you're missing the reason here that Hess wanted to leave them with absolutely no land forces bargaining chip after it done. Yeah, from a military perspective, it's brilliant.
1: I mean, they right. should have done that. Yeah. So, But I was thinking if someone wanted to keep the British military intact because they could cooperate with them in the future like we're going to get to – then uh, they would shoot themselves in the foot by finishing off the Brits if they were going to take on the Soviets, right?
0: Right. I think that may have been part of Hitler's thinking,
1: yes. Oh, wow. At this point, I'm I'm actually... But, okay, that's weird because what we're going to get to later is kind of a reversal of those two. Okay, Mm -hmm. but we'll get to that later. So, Mm -hmm. well, from a military perspective it's ludicrous to let them live on. But they did, and that's like many erratic decisions taken by the Nazis during the war. That's one of the big ones, early Mm -hmm. big ones. So, Bormann studied from the master. Bormann was a very quick learner. He, yep. un- unlike us, he was not the cosmopolitan. He was like, uh, I mean, they call him the Schweiner. He was like a little pig yep. in many respects. <laughs> yep. But he was... Uh, and, and, and pigs, I hear, have good memory and <laughs> are more more intelligent than we gave them credit for. And I think the same goes for Bormann. Bormann must have observed, he must have learned, and he was a psychopath. So obviously he took the cues he could and he positioned himself when they were rid of Hess to be the uh, gatekeeper to Hitler but yes. while Hess was alive he must have been silent he must have learned, he must have picked up and he must yep. have had the best teacher he must have gotten many perspectives he wouldn't have
0: got otherwise from Hess yes absolutely absolutely. we have to remember one more thing about Hess, this is very important uh, Bormann as I've pointed out in the SS Brotherhood of the Bell had had a hand in getting that technology out of Germany in other words Bormann knew about the project well yeah. if you go back and look at Hess prior to his flight to Great Britain he was also the Reich Commissar for all techn- technological matters in Nazi Germany in other words mm. if there were any black projects going on like a-bombs and bells and so on and so forth in Nazi Germany. Hess knew about it. Right. And that's why Bormann knew about it too. And that's why Bormann knew about it.
1: Right. Exactly. So otherwise it would be weird that he was informed. But yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Um, I know that we have one small divergence in interpretation. You tend to think that Bormann was loyal to Hess. I tend to think... Uh, that he must have been happy to get rid of Hess because of his power hunger. Um, it's a small point. It doesn't matter for this story. But whether Bowman was instrumental in getting rid of Hess or sabotaging the mission or whatever, uh, I'm I'm not even sure Hess would... Do you think Hess trusted Bowman with the, his mission
0: that we're going to get to soon? No, I, I don't think Hess trusted anybody in his in his immediate circle other than perhaps General Haushofer. Uh, Goering and Hess had this long rivalry. They were very wary of each other. Uh, similarly, Hess and Himmler were very wary of each other. But Hess, again, Hess was in such a powerful position that they – it was a it was a case of coerced loyalty. Let's put it that way. So, in other words, when I say Bormann was loyal, I don't think Bormann had a loyal bone in his body to anybody, but <laughs> not even Hitler. Not even Hitler.
1: Because there is this uh, hypothesis. I want you to address it uh, on pasong here now. There is there are those who are claiming that Bormann were. A Soviet spy. That's. For, I don't know enough of the history here. I think he may have been trained in Russia at some point early on, and from that, I think they're, you know, trying to make him. I, I doubt he was, but but what do you think about that?
0: Well, I've I've read those books that claim that Borman was in fact the the missing component of the Red Orchestra that they were trying to find for so long. The problem I have always had with that is that the evidence for him being that is considerably less than the evidence that he survived the war and did so in Mm. in South America somewhere. And he
1: doesn't fit the profile
0: of someone who would
1: be sympathetic to Soviet, right?
0: right exactly he he just doesn't he's too much bormann is too much of a of a financial capitalist i mean this mm. guy knows how to make money let me tell you and you know this doesn't fit the picture of of your traditional communist firebrand at the time and you know he was also very used to the good life and yeah he
1: wasn't working class
0: right he was he was not that kind of individual so nothing about the profile of bormann really fits with the idea that he was a soviet agent but again you know you can't dismiss the mm. idea completely out of hand could have been a
1: double agent maybe yeah
0: yeah he may have been some sort of double or triple you know mm. uh, again we're dealing with dick cheney without the warmth and charm <laughs> you know borman borman is in it for borman so, mm. <laughs> you
1: know. okay that's interesting we're soon going to take the, our first break but uh, I think we have time 10 more minutes to move up in the timeline what would be the next natural
0: step to enter in this huge
1: uh, opera
0: Well I think the net, next natural step that we have to take is the the flight itself and and part of Hess's motivations for, for undertaking it because yep. he flies to Great Britain on Saturday, May 10th, 1941 in a Messerschmitt uh, 110. This is a fast twin engine fighter. Um, and, th- you know, we'll get into the second part of all the strange stuff about that yeah. flight. There's just so much, but the motivation for it is very strange. Hitler, of course, has at that time that the flight is going on, he's he's basically conquered the Balkans and he's putting the final touches on his invasion plans for the Soviet Union Operation Barbarossa. And, you know, Hess and this is this is a key point here that that has to be mentioned before we get to this whole strange flight. Both Hess and Goering are Privately, very reserved and have very mixed feelings about an invasion of the Soviet Union. Goering's reasons for doing so are essentially the same as Hess's. We haven't taken care of Great Britain. Uh, we've got a potential entry of the United States into the war. The last thing we want to do strategically is get involved in a campaign in the east that could turn out to be very long, as of course it was. Mm. Uh, so you had both of these men questioning the wisdom of of invading the two front war of yeah. a two front war, and the the general staff, uh, General Halder, and, and people like this. We're assuring Hitler that, yeah, we can, we can knock out the Soviet Union very quickly. We've just got, you know, we've got to land on them really hard and move really fast. And, you know, the campaign at the beginning very nearly did that until, again, Hitler messed it up. <laughs> but,
1: I think they uh, underestimated uh, Stalin's psychopathy because the burnt earth tactic. I mean, Stalin, mm-hmm. for people who don't know, because we are educating people not just in interesting Hypothesis that are diverging from mainstream, we're also educating them here in mainstream history. Because God knows the schools nowadays doesn't even do that. No, they don't at all. So just so you know, people, even if Stalin didn't have as much resources and technology as the Germans, what he did have was manpower and total Mm -hmm. control. So what he did is that he, if you can imagine a line of soldiers... Uh, moving towards the front. Behind them was another line shooting anyone who even tried to look back. Right. Right. <laughs> so they didn't have any choice. He had the numbers and they had, of course, the uh, weather. They knew already twice before in history people tried, right? And the mm. Russian winter finished them off. And he had this complete, they, they were so terrified by Stalin that they would rather face the Nazi war machine. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Well, we we have to remember his background to Barbarossa that that in World War 1 the Russians did surrender to to the Germans um and to to the Austrians um due to a plot, mind you. Well, not just plots, they were just so hopelessly outclassed in in uh, industrial production and in, in technology and, and tactics and so on that. Yeah, but that it was
1: because they got Lenin and Trotsky and those guys into Soviet. It was kind of, let's finish
0: them up from within because they promised peace. Yeah, well, they did that too. They did that too, um, but but the the First World War was just a disaster for yeah. the Russian military and Stalin, of course, the the Bolsheviks instituted their their four year plans between the wars to industrialize Russia mm. because you know they could not face another another war with Germany without it and they dispersed that industry out of European Russia. This is an important important point mm. because most of Russia's heavy industry in World War One was. Uh, was in places like Riga, Warsaw, Kiev, Minsk, right. you know, and those were the areas that the Central Powers eventually occupied. So there was nothing left for the Bolsheviks to do other than surrender. <laughs> but you know, you had that precedent in the background in in World War II and in, mm. in the German General Staff thinking and the incredible ability of of the Wehrmacht to to strike hard and move quickly which in the first encouraged
1: two encouraged by France Poland
0: yeah and, and do precisely that and and you know the first two months of that campaign were just an absolute disaster for for the red army it was just a monumentally monumentally disastrous mm. but uh, nonetheless the the problem that Happened as as I think both Goering and and Hess began to to suspect was Hitler's tendency to micromanage and and go over the military thinking of of his of his advisors and I suspect that maybe in the background of their thinking they were suspecting that okay we've got this great plan and we've got the logistics all worked out the last thing we want is this corporal you know messing things <laughs> up so you had you had the misgivings at a very high level with both hess and, and garing uh thinking that this this is not a very wise step we need to get england out of the war before we undertake this this adventure <laughs> Another observation, I think uh,
1: the difference here between, even if they had common mutual interest here, Göring has obviously been more brilliant military strategics than Hitler because, you know, people say, oh, he was such a brilliant... I don't think so. He was high on himself. He got lucky and he had good advisors. Uh, I don't see any evidence for Hitler being a brilliant military strategician. I think Göring... Hess was better, but doesn't even matter. The point is, I think a difference here is that Hess was into it for the course, whereas right, I think Goering
0: also had an extra incentive of wanna be fewer yeah, yeah Goering Goering you know Hitler is surrounded by plotters all the time himmler Goering, to a certain extent, even Hess himself, but uh. Goering yeah I think Goering you have an honest case that that this man uh, may have been thinking as eventually himmler himself did that you know we need to replace this guy and and get somebody else in there that uh, is is going to lead the country properly and it's interesting when we get into part two we'll discuss this. Mm-hmm. Goering was one of the few people in the Nazi leadership that the British trusted. And the reason that they trusted him was even before the invasion of Poland. Goering is conducting these back-channel negotiations with the British, trying to head off a war with the British if the Germans invaded Poland. And these negotiations, incidentally, continued right up through July, and they were secretly conducted uh, by representatives of, of Hermann Goering to the British. July of? 1939. Mm. Yeah, so Goering himself is involved in these peace feelers even before the war has begun. With Hitler's blessing. Uh, with Hitler's blessing in part, but I don't think that, again, we're going to get back to this. Yeah. I don't think that, that Goering and Hess in particular are, are letting Hitler in on everything. Everything, you no. Know. Uh in in that in that milieu you have to let him in on enough stuff because if he gets wind of it and you haven't told him then you know you yeah, you're done. He's micromanaging, so,
1: yeah. but uh, but uh, very interesting also that uh, the way he dealt with because he knew. I mean, in a totalitarian, very hierarchical system, you are bound to have first off psychopaths trying to advance. Second right. of all, uh, it's going to be dog eat dog. So if you want to stay on top, uh, like like Stalin, he was paranoid for good reason. He was kind of the same system but mm-hmm. uh, the difference was that in in Russia there were clear hierarchical positions Hitler he kind of deliberately I think conflated mm-hmm. it wasn't a clear hierarchy mm-hmm. you could often find different spheres of interest colliding right. and then they would have to you know <laughs> battle it out so to speak right. and and who was more in favor of Hitler at that time would probably win that internal <laughs> struggle right. or right. conflict of interest right so so and about doing that it's a brilliant move from Hitler because he keeps all the number 2s in fighting right exactly so he himself can
0: right. kind of stay stay safe on top yeah 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 this this is a key point because uh by the time that Hess makes his flight I am absolutely convinced that he and Goering have worked out a plan to, to get the British out of the war and to replace Hitler. Um, I suspect that the deal was that you know, Goering would step in as, as head of state and that that Hess would retain control of the party apparatus which of the two you know it's the same position that Stalin was in in Russia Hess is in that position within Germany he's kind of the general secretary uh, corresponding to the position that Stalin held as general mm-hmm. secretary of the of the communist party and he parlayed that into his his eventual position of power and and hess is in very much the same position because he's controlling the party apparatus all of its intelligence organizations bureaucratic appointments and so on so yeah i think that there is a there's a quiet deal between these two rivals to to get rid of hitler and to to prosecute the rest of the war with either the british out of it or perhaps even entering on the side of the Axis against this uh, Soviet crusade that they want to want to wage, and of course, had the British done that, that would have taken America out of consideration completely mm-hmm. because America did not have the wherewithal to to uh, mount transatlantic invasions without forward bases that you know Britain could provide. So their thinking again is very strategic in that sense.
1: I think, here's an hypothesis Um I think that, and here we're going to see a line to part three of our talk today We're so we're not going to go down that road I'm just going to uh, put it up as a mirror to entice mm-hmm. people but I think Göring and Hass may have started that slow, careful process of I wouldn't say trust each other but at least realizing that it would be in both their own interest to kind of cooperate, quote-unquote, uh, and they may have a strong incentive to, from this. And what I'm talking about is they, as you've pointed out before in other programs, they co-sponsored a certain mission yes, to Antarctica. Yes, exactly. And if your scenario is right, if, if that's not just a trivial thing, they have both been in on something big. Yes,
0: absolutely. Which and- already
1: gives them incentive to channels between them at least
0: well as we're as we're going to see in, in when we get to part 3 there is very suggestive evidence although it's a very it's it's a detail that flies by so fast you can almost miss it but there is a detail about the hess period in great britain where i think antarctica is definitely being referred to in code mm. But, yes, uh, Goering and Hess know something about about this Antarctic thing that has that never… That makes
1: them by default brothers in arms.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it does. Uh, as I said, there's nothing in Nazi Germany prior to Hess's flight that happens that he does not know about and know in detail. So, you know, Gehring may end up being the official sponsor of that mission. But if there's anything uncovered, rest assured, Hess is, is going to know about it. I thought uh, you said
1: that they were co-sponsoring that mission.
0: Well, again, we'll, we'll get that to part three. Uh, Gehring, okay. Gehring is the sponsor. At one time, I believe I did use the phrase co-sponsor, but yeah. he's it's not really the case. He's more in the background here, but it's a very significant D. Detail that connects Hess to Antarctica while he's in Great Britain. And it's a detail, again, that flies by so fast that most researchers miss it. Yep. Uh, even even Picknett and Prince, who leave. Ver- yeah, but they wouldn't have the context
1: to. Right. Right. understand why it's important right we do and right. we're going to get to it i think actually this is where we should take our first break okay what do you think yep, yep that's good for me okay folks we're, we're going to get gonna coffee get and refreshments, refreshments and we'll soon be soon. back all right all i'll be right back
0: all of our files are free and will remain free if you like the show You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.